Hello, everyone. Great to see you. Shalom to y'all. There's actually a little plate, a plaque you can buy in Israel that says Shalom, y'all. It uh, makes a great gift. <clears throat> well, it was a good trip in Israel. It's hard to have a bad trip going to such a special place and seeing all of the significant places uh, that we read about in the scriptures, but actually seeing them face to face. We went to uh, a lot of places, or a few places that we hadn't planned to go to because you probably heard in the news a couple weeks ago, I guess it was when we were in Israel, that uh, there was some unrest there that actually did cause us to change our schedule. It's actually the first time in the many, many tours I've ever done that we've had to change a schedule, which it, it was inconvenient, but at the same time in Israel there's so much to see that it was just a blessing of a different kind. So we got to see some places that weren't planned, but that were still just as magnificent as those we had planned to see. But it was a neat uh, way to just trust God, because you know, you've got your schedule, and then God's got his schedule, which is often like our lives. So it was also neat to be able to go to Egypt. We did an extension to Egypt, and you know, the pyramids are great, and the Nile River, you know, that's pretty cool. Longest river in the world, yeah. But what's really cool is to go to this museum and see the mummies, the pharaohs of the time of Moses. I mean, there's several of them, including Hatshepsut, who was the daughter of Pharaoh who pulled Moses out of the Nile. And I could look right in her face. I was like, those lips kissed Moses. Those hands held Moses. So seeing Bible places is good, but seeing Bible faces is pretty, pretty special. Well, flying internationally uh, does things with your time zone head. And daylight savings is nothing compared to eight time zones that you're trying to get back upside down. And it always reminds me of how shifting our clocks, that's all you're doing in time zones. You're just shifting a clock. Your body still thinks it's, you know, 3 a.m., whatever time it really is. But it plays tricks with our minds. And I remember years ago I went on a men's retreat And I'm an early riser, and so a couple of the guys that were there with us named George and David. David and George asked if I would get them up at 6.30. said, fine, you know, I'll be up before that, and I'll be glad to come in there and and wake you up. And I set my watch for 5.30 so I could get up, you know, earlier than everybody else and just have true quiet time with God. And... um, got ready to go, but the problem with men's retreats is it's got pros and cons. The pros is you get to bunk with your buddies. The con is you have to bunk with your buddies. (laughs) And they snore. I mean, bad snore. There's some guys, he's like, I'm I'm just going to go sleep in my car. You guys, I'll see you at breakfast. So you, you have a choice. I had a choice. I can wear earplugs and sleep, or I cannot wear earplugs and hear the alarm on my watch to get up at 5.30. So I went for the earplugs to sleep, which means I'm not going to hear my watch. So every time in the night, I, I, I woke up and I thought, well, what time is it? And I'd mess with my watch to see what time it was. And so it was like 11 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 3 o'clock, it just kept going. Finally, I'm fiddling with my watch, and finally it says 5 o'clock, and I thought, shoot, I'm done with this, I'm just getting up. So I got up, I did my thing in the the commons area, and 6.30 rolls around. 
So I thought, okay, I'm gonna go wake up David and George. I go in there and wake them up and they look at me like I'm an insect. <laughs> and so I said, hey, David, I'm gonna get you some coffee, I'll be right back. I go get his coffee and I come right back, he's asleep, the ingrate. But George, George got up, stumbled into the commons, sat there, opened his Bible, and just was kind of nodding off like a baby in a high chair. And time goes by, and it's almost like 7.30, and I thought, there's nobody else awake yet. We're supposed to have breakfast in 30 minutes. I'm going to go in there and flip on all the lights in the dorm and wake up these sluggards. So I'm about to leave. And George stops me and he says, don't you remember I asked you to get me up at 6.30? I said, yeah, I got you up at 6.30. He says, it's 4.30. And turns out what had happened in the night as I was messing with my watch, I set it to some time out in the Atlantic. <laughs> I didn't get up at 5, I got up at like 3. <laughs> and so everything's back up two hours. And I thought about what, what would the mayhem be like in our world if we didn't all have a standard clock time? We even call it standard time or mean time, which is an interesting way to refer to it. But we have, we have a standard. And if we didn't know that our class began at a certain time, you know, we just all kind of wander in and out. Some people do that anyway <laughs> at a certain time. But the order in our universe the predictable sunrises and sunsets all point to a God of order. And we need the standard that he offers, not just in time, in life, but also in the standard of our hearts. Well, let's turn together to the book of Leviticus chapter 13. Leviticus chapter 13. You may remember some years back, there were three bronze plaques that were inscribed with biblical passages that had stood for more than 30 years at the Grand Canyon, but were taken down after a complaint, the U.S. Park officials took them down after a complaint by the ACLU that religious messages violate the U.S. Constitution. And every time I hear that, I wonder if the ACLU has ever walked around Washington, D.C. Because we've got Bible verses etched in granite in in our nation's capital. Oh, and then there's also the Declaration of Independence that talks that's based on the unalienable rights that God has given us, our Creator. It's right in our founding documents. Anyway, but our culture more and more is going to take God's word from us, is going to take away the standard, is going to take away the timepiece, as it were, to where we don't know what time zone we're in, morally, spiritually, ethically. We're sort of left to our own devices to figure it out. And the world embraces the standard of our natural order because you can't deny it. Gravity works. You can't deny it. Sunset, sunrise is going to do what it does regardless of what you think about it. It's going to do what it does. God set up an order to creation. Paul says that his invisible attributes are clearly seen in the world that he has made. And he's done the same thing in the Word of God. Today in Leviticus, we're going to look at three chapters and three tough chapters. 
We need to see them together. That's why we're kind of all looking at them together. And it's going to be more of a survey, definitely not verse by verse. We're just going to kind of pick sort of hopscotch, as it were, through these three chapters, 13, 14, and 15, and look at them together and some timeless principles that we can apply. So Leviticus 13, look at right at verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a man has on the skin of his body a swelling or a scab or a bright spot, and it becomes an infection of leprosy on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron, the priest, or to one of his sons, the priests. The priest shall look at the mark on the skin of his body, and if the hair and the infection has turned white, the infection appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is infection of leprosy. When the priest has looked at him, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the bright spot is white on the skin of his body, and it does not appear to be deeper than the skin, and the hair on it is not turned white, then the priest shall isolate him who has the infection for seven days. You know, those verses aren't really something that you'd see on a plaque at Mardell's. <laughs> it's so interesting to read these things and, to, and to, to think, what in the world, Lord God, would you have for us out of this? Well, believe it or not, there is uh, some good timeless truths. We're not going to read all the details of chapter 13, but the chapter deals with types of skin disease, leprosy, one of them. Disease was not part of God's original plan for us. Disease came in, as Michael Easley said so very well today. Wasn't that magnificent? I just loved that. That it came in as a result of sin. It wasn't part of his created world. It's part of being in a fallen world. It is a symptom of our human alienation from God. Let me say that again. Disease is a symptom of our human alienation from God, and it can't be ignored. God wants it dealt with, which is why these laws are given here. It seems like God's turning medical on us here in Leviticus 13, when actually the, the physical life and the spiritual life are not separate, that we are one person, and one is often, often, often used to teach the other. Disease teaches us about our spiritual life. And uh, leprosy, a person was placed outside the camp because of leprosy. They shall isolate him, it says at the end of verse 4, for seven days, because the inevitable event or the inevitable course of leprosy would take a person to death. And, you know, a corpse had to be taken outside the camp. So there was this, this picture that disease had to be put outside the camp, not because we're ostracizing the person, but because God is using the disease as an illustration of death, of the ultimate uh, result of the disease. The goal is to enjoy fellowship with God, and this chapter basically lays out what has to take place for one to be clean again. Uh, we all remember the, the mania that happened with COVID. In fact, there was a point, my daughter said it so well, she said, Dad, I went to Walmart the other day, and there was a woman there that, well, I don't think it was a woman, I think it was a man, in light of what she's about to say, but she said, uh, there was a man there without a mask on. She said, he might as well have not been wearing a shirt. It was this, this sense of, that is so inappropriate to not be wearing a mask. You remember those days when if you saw somebody without a mask, it was almost like offensive? Yeah. We were so hypersensitive 
to disease, that we all wore masks and we all had the expectation that it was either improper or offensive or wrong to not be wearing one. And even though those days are gone, it's still standard practice in surgery. I read about a medical center that has these surgery procedures. Listen to some of this. It says in their section nine describes infection control, quote, proper hand scrubbing and wearing of proper masks, caps or hoods and scrub gowns will be strictly required. Proper sterilization of all instruments and linens will be uniformly accomplished. All wounds with drainage must be cultured. Any wounds with pus have to be bandaged. The attire, all those entering the operating room must be attired in clean scrub apparel. Scrub clothes worn by the surgery department must be clean so as to minimize the risk of transporting contamination from the operating room. And on and on it goes. The temperature has to be so-and-so, the instruments have to be perfectly sterile. Why? Because you don't want any contamination going into a surgery. I mean, how many of you would be willing to be operated on by the very best doctor if you were going to be operated on in a restroom of a truck stop? <laughs> no, thank you. We want it to be sterile. We want it to be perfectly sterile. We have that expectation for physical surgery. Why do we get upset when, when God has that expectation spiritually? God is perfect. God the Son is perfect in all he is, material and immaterial. Physically and spiritually, Jesus Christ was perfect, is perfect. And so we have to be like him to be with him, physically as well as spiritually. We get it spiritually. I mean, we preach it. We've accepted it. But physically, we think, you know, well, there's no perfecting this. I mean, how can I, how can I perfect what is wasting away day by day? You can't. I can't. Any more than we could perfect our spiritual lives. It's God's work, and God will do it at one point. Uh, whenever I go to a museum, I like to see watercolor paintings when they're done by a master. We all seen our kids' watercolor paintings, and they're cute because our kids have done them. But if you look at them, they're really bad otherwise. But you see a master at watercolor, and you just think, how in the world do they do that? You remember doing watercolors as a kid? Clyde, did they have watercolors when you were a kid? <laughs> I like his answer. I think so. That's good. Well, when I was a kid doing watercolors, you, you, learn how to do, you learn how to do it. You do the light colors first. Because if you started with the dark colors, your water just is dark. I mean, once you rinse your brush, it's dark water. There's no going back once it's dark water. If you got yellow water, a little blue water, that's okay. You can still manage. But once you put gray or black in the mix, that water's dark and there's nothing you can do. That's what sin is like. Sin puts the black in our water. It discolors it, and no amount of yellow, no amount of white, no amount of anything else that you add to that water will get rid of the black. It's that way with our lives as well. It takes God to purify our lives. Look down at verse 40, chapter 13, verse 40, which will ring true with several of the men in this room. Verse 40, now if a man loses the hair of his head, he is bald, he is clean. Boy, that's good news, isn't it? 
Verse 41, if his head becomes bald at the front and the sides, he is bald on the forehead, he is clean. I love that. It's like, if you lose your hair, you wonder, you know, am I clean or unclean? I remember Dr. Howard Hendricks. Uh, uh, Howard Hendricks used to say that if a man is bald in the front, he's a thinker. If a man is bald in the back, he's a lover. If the man is bald in the front and the back, he only thinks he's a lover. <laughs> Talk about practical. Well, chapter 13 goes on to show that everyone is going to be unclean at some point. And the rest of the, fa- the chapter deals with fabric, not necessarily people, but the same principle applies. Uh, when you have something like mold or fungus or something that's not normal, it had to be dealt with. Holiness in Israel is symbolized by being whole. We see this all throughout the Bible. Uh, white garments represent holy people. They're given white garments. Only perfect animals were sacrificed. Only physically perfect priests could serve. Only whole, normal people were allowed in the tabernacle to worship. Only normal clothing could be worn. Only normal homes could be lived in. If any of these things were not normal, according to God's standards, then they had to be dealt with to be brought back into normalness, and then all is well. Uh, Chapter 14 deals with the solution to chapter 13. Chapter 13 talked about the, uh, the leper and the home that was contaminated. And chapter 14 now talks about how this leper can be cleansed. Look at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priests. And if the priest and the priest shall go out to the outside of the camp, thus the priest shall look. And if the infection of leprosy is healed in the leper, then the priest shall give orders to take two live, clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet string and hyssop for the one who is to be cleansed. The priest shall also give orders to slay the one bird in an earthenware vessel over running water. As for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet string and the hyssop and shall dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water. He shall then sprinkle seven times the one who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the live bird go free over the open field. The one who is to be cleansed shall then wash his clothes, shave off all his hair, bathe in water, and be clean. Now afterward he may enter the camp, but he shall stay outside his tent for seven days. It will be on the seventh day that he shall shave off all his hair. He shall shave his head and his beard and his eyebrows, even all his hair. He shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and be clean. I remember when I had shoulder surgery a couple of years ago, and I'm sort of embarrassed to say this, especially with the men in the room, but they shaved under my arm. They didn't ask me if that was okay. I wanted to say, hey, stop. You know, this, this, this is too much. You know, I'll just live with the pain. But they said, no, it's got to happen. So it happened. And I'll tell you what, I felt like surrendering my man card at that point. It's like, it's a weird feeling. But thankfully, everything grows back. But this is, you say, 
Wayne, that's just too much information. This, this is what the Bible talks about. The, these poor guys had to be completely shaved. Even your eyebrows had to be shaved. And the thought here is, we even see this today in medical treatment. It involves washing and shaving the affected area. And for the leper to be cleansed after shaving off all his hair, the text says that he would offer these sacrifices prior to entering the tabernacle. And then it mentions these two birds. What do these birds represent? I mean, there's detail here, but we're going to just back up and look at the big generality of it. The symbolism, basically, these two birds both represent the person. And it, and it represents the two directions that the person could have gone or could go according to the grace of God. One bird died. It, it, the life was taken, and it represented what would happen apart from God's gracious intervention. If it was just justice, the person would die. But the other bird lived. In fact, not only lived, was dipped in the blood of the one who died, and then it was set free. Just a beautiful picture. Just imagine this bird set free over an open field. And it's used this as a, as a picture, as a metaphor of the healing of this person. That the other bird is free, representing their healing from disease and contamination and their new life and new fellowship with God. Sort of like a, a bird that's set free to fly again. Well, first principle of our text today and I love the simplicity of it. What God requires of us, God provides for us. What God, provide, what God requires of us, God provides for us. But of course, we must accept it by faith. God required perfection, and we can't do it on our own, so he provides for us. What God requires of us, he provides us. Now, keep your place here in Leviticus, if you would, and turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17. I remember in college, I had to learn music history. I was a music major. I know it's a very marketable degree. And one of the most marketable parts of it was learning music history. I hated music history. In fact, I'm still not terribly fond of the memory of being in that class. Maybe it was the professor, I don't know. But it was just seemed, it was one of those things that I thought, I'm never going to use this. Why are you making me learn this? I will never use this. I, mean, I, I sort of went into it with an attitude, and you can tell I'm just still a little bitter about the whole experience. <laughs> It's one of those things that you just, a class that you think, this is totally pointless. But I need it to graduate, so I'm taking it. That's how the priests probably felt when they read Leviticus about healing a leper. This never happens. Lepers don't get healed. They die. It was totally academic until Jesus comes along. Uh, Luke chapter 17, look at verse 11. Luke 17, verse 11. 11. While he was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, 
go and show yourself to the priests. As they were going, they were cleansed. Now, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. It's such a beautiful picture because when these priests who had studied the Mosaic Law in the millennia before Jesus, they learned one of these music history courses about cleansing the leper. I mean, you're never going to use it. Lepers never were healed. And then you've got these ten lepers that show up one day in Jerusalem saying, we've been healed. In fact, there's ten of us who have been healed. This is undeniable. And the priests, and remember that Luke says that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Where would he have sent these lepers to be, to go to the priests? To Jerusalem. So the lepers are going ahead of Christ to Jerusalem. The lepers basically say we were healed by this man, Jesus. And Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and this is his last journey there before he's, before he's killed by the very priests who would have had the witness, the testimony of these lepers that were healed. For eight days, these ten men would be silent preachers of the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. I am uh, not a fan of The Simpsons, the cartoon, so now that I've said that, I want to tell you about one of them, one of the episodes. Uh, Bart Simpson is about to flunk the fourth grade because he uh, isn't going to pass his history class. And so there's this whole deal about he trying to get this other guy to coach him and, and teach him, but that doesn't work out. And finally, he's like the, the last night before the class, and he realizes he, uh, he realizes he can't cram all the information in his head, and he's just going to fail. And so with the exam only hours away, his mom comes in and says, it's past your bedtime, Bart. So he closes his, closes his history book, and he got down on his knees, and he prays on The Simpsons. It says this, quote, he says, well, old-timer, I guess this is the end of the road. I know I haven't been a good kid, but if I have to go to school tomorrow, I'll fail the test and I'll be held back. I just need one more day to study, Lord. I need your help. A teacher strike, a power failure, a blizzard, anything that will cancel school tomorrow. I know it's asking a lot, but if anyone can do it, you can. Thanking you in advance, your pal, Bart Simpson. Amen. Well, outside you see Bart's light go off and you see a snowflake fall. And the biggest blizzard in the history of the city hits. In fact, in the background, they play the Hallelujah Chorus at the time. And in the morning, instead of going sledding with all his friends, Bart studies and crams all day long. The next day he goes in, takes the test, passes with a D minus. <laughs> a D minus. Runs up, kisses his teacher, shows his dad his B minus, you know, and his dad, Homer, puts it on the refrigerator and says, I'm proud of you, son. And Bart makes this great statement. He says, thanks, dad, but part of this D minus belongs to God. 
I saw that, or actually read that, and thought, you know, let's give God credit. Let's give credit where credit is due, right? But the thing is, like Bart, uh, we don't, we can't study and cram to pass, even with a D minus. But the good news is, what God requires of us, God provides for us, an A plus. God gives us the righteousness of His Son, Jesus. He imputes or gives the righteousness of Christ to anyone who will believe in Jesus Christ, Christ who died on the cross to remove our sins, to pay for our sins. And if we have faith in Jesus, the righteousness of of Jesus is given to us so that when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the righteousness of his holy Son. That's a whole lot better than a D minus. That is an absolute A+. What God requires of us, God provides for us. Now, turn back to Leviticus, if you would. These two birds we saw illustrate that our life or our death are in the hands of God. It could go either way, and it could go either way righteously. God has decided that it will go the way of grace, that he will allow a substitute to die in our place rather than us. It's interesting, these two birds also parallel Christ's death and resurrection. Christ died for our sins, and then he rose to show that our sins were paid for, and then he ascended to glory. Well, second principle from our text is that we ought to view every physical recovery as a preview of our future glorification. We ought to view every physical recovery as a preview of our future glorification. We tend to focus on the non-recovery moments of life and sort of assume that the recovery times that have happened, that's just what's supposed to happen. But the reality is we live in a fallen world. We all have fallen bodies that if right were right, we would all die as a result. Think about when Jesus walked the shores of Galilee His message was the kingdom of God. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. And when he healed people, he was giving a preview of what he would do to all who would enter that kingdom. He would heal their bodies. So to enter the kingdom, you not only have to repent, but also you have to be made whole. Jesus did that. The blind could see. The lepers were cleansed. The dead were raised. I like uh, what Benjamin Franklin said. He said, God heals, and the doctor takes the money. (laughs) Well, we need those doctors. God often works through doctors. But the fact is, God heals. God's the one that does it. And we ought to view every physical recovery as a preview of our future glorification. Just as Jesus' death and resurrection was a preview of all resurrections, so every healing is a preview of all who will be made clean to enter God's kingdom. Now, back in Leviticus, verse 33 of chapter 14 begins a section that uh, we're not going to read, but I'll just sort of summarize for you. The NASB calls it a mark of leprosy in a house. I think the NIV probably does a better job translating. It's not a mark of leprosy as much as it is a spreading 
mildew. It's this mildew or mold that just continues to spread. And it's the same principle. It needs to be dealt with. It needs to be cleansed. All of us uh, need to be cleansed and holy in our lives, our bodies, our clothes should honor God, and our homes. There should be no corrupting influence. And that's sort of a, 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 sort of a sidebar principle that we could take from this. You know, just as we would not allow mold in our homes, think about we would not, we need to not allow any corrupting influence in our home. And there's a, a ton that the world is trying to get into our homes to corrupt us. And I'll just leave that there for you to, to fill in the specifics of your particular home. We need to keep out the corrupting influence. It's tough to do, but we must do it. Interesting, every year the Israelites would get all the leaven out of their homes. If you've ever been to Israel and when the time they're doing this, it's just amazing the thoroughness of it. I mean, like everything shuts down and they go to work cleaning. It's like a, a, a one time a year, you know, spring cleaning type thing. I even saw, saw a guy mopping the walls one time to get all the leaven out of the, the area. The world has a corrupting influence on us. Uh, you don't have to live in it very long to see it. It affects the way we dress, it affects our homes, it affects our clothes, it affects our bodies, and it affects our hearts. We are drawn to it. In fact, I was reading just this week. You don't have to turn there. I will turn there and see if I can find what I was reading. And it just stuck out at me, probably because I was in Israel and saw the... Um, the tassels that Orthodox Jews wear, they wear tassels on their, on their garments. They stick out of their clothes. And here's where that comes from. I'll just read from Numbers chapter 15, verse 38. Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. And here's the reason, next verse. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot. In other words, the tassel is to be a trigger. It's something you look at that triggers you to remember to look at, to remember, and to do. Look, remember, do. Those are the three words I have underlined in Numbers 15, verse 39. Now, you don't have to have tassels on your clothes, but it's a great principle to think about something as a trigger that reminds you to do it. Me, I've got this ring on. And in Hebrew, it reads, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And when I look at this, my intent is to remind me to do it. It's, it is my tassel, as it were. That doesn't mean you've got to buy a ring. That doesn't mean that you've got to you know, wear a tassel. But something to trigger your mind, to remind you. Maybe it's a three-by-five card on the dashboard of your car or on your mirror, your vanity mirror in the morning. Maybe it's a, a, a beep every hour on your watch that it can be anything. It's arbitrary what it is, as long as you use it as a trigger to remind you of the commandments of the Lord, not only to remember them, but to do them. Why? Because our world has a corrupting influence on us. 
as that as the text said that I read, so that you don't go after your own heart. Because our own heart pulls us away from God. It doesn't pull us to God. That's why Jesus had to come to us. It pulls us away from God. We want to do our own thing. We don't want to follow God. So here's the third principle for us, and that is remember that this world and its corrupting influences are passing away. Remember that this world and its corrupting influences are passing away. Jesus said not to store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy. It's not a rule against saving. It's a rule against a mindset that focuses on that rather than on God. Remember that this world and its corrupting influences are passing away. I saw a commercial that priced various things to take you to, I think it was a ball game or something, but it showed people having a great time and you know, all these people having fun and then underneath it, it just showed words. It said, tickets, $24. And then underneath it said, snacks, $25. And then at the very end it said, memories, priceless. That's good marketing, isn't it? That's great marketing, but the fact is, to have memories that are priceless, you've got to pay $24 for tickets and $25 for snacks. It doesn't come free. And that's the world's way of teaching us or training us or pulling us. It's not free. And it's cyclical. It's, never, it's a never-ending cycle. It never ultimately satisfies. Woody Allen said this. Is it okay if I quote Woody Allen here in class? He said this. It's hard for me to enjoy anything because I'm aware of how transient things are. Yes, there are times when you think, my God, life is sweet, it's nice, and thoughts of mortality are temporary. You know, watching the Marx Brothers or a Knicks game or listening to great jazz, you get a feeling of ecstasy, but then it passes, and the dark reality of life starts to creep back in. Even Woody Allen realizes that what we chase in this world is temporary. Listen to how the New International Version translates these verses. Just listen. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So remember that this world and its corrupting influences are passing away. Uh, I read a true story about a cargo ship that was en route from Columbia to Miami. It pulled into port five days after setting sail and out jumped these stowaways who were hoping to get to America, to basically sneak their way into America. They jump out, jump out on the land, and think, wow, we're here in America, the land of the free, ready to claim their new freedom. The only problem is the ship hadn't docked in Miami. It had had, it had, had mechanical problems going through the Panama Canal and had gone back to the nearest port in Colombia. A policeman... <laughs> who arrested these guys, said this, quote, they wanted the American dream, but they only made it to Cartagena. <laughs> I, 
I love that because that is the way sin operates. It promises land of the free, hop on, stow away, jump in. But when you get there, it's just Cartagena. It's not what you thought it would be. Uh, Reader's Digest had an article entitled 10 Ways to Early Retirement. And there was one couple that uh, was featured in here. Uh, they'd retired early to Florida. The wife filled her days with tennis matches at the club, working on her shell collection. The husband raced about the coast in his sports car between tea times. And John Piper, of course, gets a hold of this, and he said that he calls it a tragedy. He said the couple is bought into the terrible lie that this life's goal and end is comfort alone. And Piper, as only Piper could say it, said that they would one day have to stand before God and say, look, God, at my shell collection. Now, that's not to say we can't have sport cars or shell collections or play tennis or golf, but our life is not centered around these things. Our life is centered around the gospel, the Great Commission, about uh, seeking first the kingdom of God and trusting him to take care of all these other things. That's a tough assignment. That's not anything that goes with the flow. It's not what our culture teaches. It's not what our culture markets. Unless we're in the Word of God on a daily basis, we're not going to hear it except once a week if we come to church. We've got to constantly be renewing our mind, because otherwise we're going to get sucked into the vortex of our culture. And all of a sudden, we're not going to know what time it is to go back to the time zone illustration because we've got no standard. No standard that's not only objective, but a standard that's in our hearts. And I don't know, maybe I don't, I don't want to be too harsh or rough, but I want to just say this does no good if we just kind of stick it on the shelf. See, I believe the Bible. There it is. But to say I believe the Bible, here it is. It's in here. I read it. I struggle against what it teaches about my fallen nature, but I'm going to keep struggling and I'm not going to give up. I heard a great song this week that, uh, oh, it just really touched me. And it basically reminded me of that, that time when Jesus and his disciples were in the upper room. And remember, Jesus had told his disciples on a number of occasions, I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised, and I'll meet you in Galilee. And when Jesus repeated that again in the upper room, of course, Peter heard nothing else but the fact that Jesus said he was going to die. And he says, Lord, this will never happen to you. Over and over and over, Peter heard, I'm going to be raised from the dead. I'm not just going to die. I'm going to rise again. Peter heard it, but he didn't hear it. He focused only on that part that suited Peter's narrow view of what the Messiah should be. The Messiah doesn't die. Because where does that leave me as a follower of the Messiah? Think about that with regard to our lives as well. Because we tend to focus only on the parts of the Bible that we want to hear. We've read the whole thing. We know about the resurrection part. But we're so focused on the here and now, just like Peter, that we can't stand the fact that when Jesus says... We might suffer for him, or that we might have a cross to bear, or that like Christ, we've got to take up our cross. We don't want to take up our cross. We want 
the next life in this life. Once again, I love how Michael Easley referred to this because it is so biblical to have the mindset that this life is not all of life. That is so important for us to remember. If we try to get out of this life, uh, I'm, I, would, I thought about that verse where Paul says, if, if our hope is only in this life, we are the most of all to be pitied because we're constantly saying no to the fun stuff, as it were, in the world. But Paul says it's, it's far beyond this life. It's eternal. It is an eternal weight of glory. These chapters in Leviticus, with all its topics, deal with really one single problem and one single solution. Um, we didn't even get into chapter 15, and it's probably just as well that we didn't, because if you kind of glance down through it, uh, it's a pretty big challenge to apply. Just kind of look at it. It deals with chronic infections, seminal discharges, menstruation, bodily emissions, not your typical Sunday school message. But the personal nature of chapter 15 also shows how these certain experiences, though completely normal, ceremonially made people unclean and out of fellowship with God, but God provided purification. What God requires, God also provides. All of these topics in Leviticus deal with one single problem and solution, that disease, decay, and uncleanliness are incompatible with God's holiness, but that's okay because God provides the solution. He provides healing and restoration. And just like the one bird that died and the other bird that flew away, once again we see that our life is in God's hands and God has allowed Jesus to die for us and we are that bird that's set free to fly, to fly again. Let's pray. Once again, Father, we thank you for life from a text that we often consider dead or useless at best. The principles that we see all throughout the Scripture are consistent, and that is that in our fallen nature and living in a fallen world, we struggle with disease, with decay, with death, with the sin that caused it all, that's rooted in our own hearts. But we also see the wonderful truth that what you require of us, holiness, is something you also provide for us. In the Old Testament, you did it through these rituals that were so illustrative, ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ, the one who died in our place, to make us the righteous people that we could not be otherwise, not only spiritually, but also physically that we have the hope of not only eternal life lived as spirits, as souls, but also in bodies that live forever in your presence. Uh, thank you, Father, that you give us this hope and that we are not merely just plotting one day after the other, living a life of, of frustration and, and struggle, but we have hope, we persevere. We take the next step because we believe that there is a reason to do so, that you're honored in the suffering, you're honored in the struggle, and that this little life that we have is the only brief moment in all eternity when we can honor you in the face of struggle. 
And so help us, Lord, to do it well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. Welcome back. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.